Hello, everyone. This is EJ Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor at AdAge, and welcome to the latest edition of the Marketers Brief Podcast, our weekly chat with key marketing industry players and the AdAge reporters who cover them. For the past several weeks, this podcast has lived under the AdAge AdLib umbrella, but we are now liberated. We are now a standalone podcast that you can find on your favorite podcast player, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and others. So please do us a favor and sign up. On today's show, we are happy to be joined by Linda Goldstein, who is a partner at Baker Hosteller and one of the leading advertising lawyers in the country. We'll get into why there's a rise in false advertising lawsuits and what brands should look out for in order to avoid legal trouble. We'll also talk a little bit about the subscription-based business, which includes brands such as Netflix, which lure people into signing up in perpetuity. But there's potential problems there, and we'll get into that with Linda. Hi, Linda. Thanks for joining us today on the Marketers Brief podcast. Happy to have you with us. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, EJ. So I wanted to go over several issues today with you. And the one I wanted to start out with is just false advertising lawsuits. It seems to be that there we're seeing more of these in the recent months, including some high-profile ones. Uh, you know, Anheuser-Busch and uh, Miller Coors are dueling it out in court. There's some other big brand names that, that are also out there in court. Um, are you seeing a rise in, in, in these cases? And what might be driving this? So we're definitely seeing what you're seeing, EJ. Um, there, uh, you know, it's interesting because there has really been a period of time when when we have uh, seen a real downturn in Lanham Act cases. In fact, it's a subject that's been talked about at industry conferences, um, largely motivated uh, by a decision involving eBay, which was not a Lanham Act case, but in that case, the court held that um, basically irreparable harm could not be presumed and that uh, the plaintiff would sort would have the higher burden of showing irreparable harm. And, and that decision put a little bit of a damper on the incidence of class action litigation, but it, it, it is certainly unusual in the space of, you know, just about a month to see three Lanham Act cases involving, you know, high profile brands uh, in, you know, leaders in their respective industry categories. Uh, it's certainly something that we have to take notice of because certainly within the context of the last several years, it's, it's a rather unusual event. Just for the non-lawyers out there, you mentioned the Lanham Act. Just just give us a basic description of what the Lanham Act is and, and how it applies here. Sure, and, and, and sorry, uh, my apologies to the non-lawyers uh, out there. So the Lanham Act is actually a section under the trademark laws that allows companies to bring lawsuits against one another if uh, there are false statements being made by a company either about its own products or a competitor's products. And the remedies under the Lanham Act um, are, are quite attractive uh, to a company that is, you know, really upset by a, a competitor's advertising because it allows the plaintiff to obtain 
both injunctive relief, meaning they can put it at an end to the advertising, which is usually the primary goal in a Lanham Act litigation, but it also provides for monetary damages. And if the misrepresentations are found to be willful, there can actually be treble damages, which, which, which can be somewhat significant. Uh, and so basically the Lanham Act is the primary vehicle that advertisers can use if they want to go to court to challenge another company's advertising, uh, either because they feel that the competitor is making false claims about their own product or false comparative claims involving the plaintiff's products or services. We obviously live in a very competitive world and with the number of just new brands out there and just the, the competition, the way I see it, is as fierce as ever. And, it, and brands want to be aggressive and make statements about why they are different. Uh, what would you caution, though, like a brand? What are some like common pitfalls you fall into as a brand and you're trying to be aggressive? Um, like what would your advice be to avoid getting in any kind of legal trouble? Like, are you seeing some things that almost always cause issues? Well, obviously, uh, you know, as with any advertising, you want to make sure that your claims are properly substantiated. So you want to have all your claims reviewed by legal counsel. Obviously, if you're doing a comparative ad, um, you know that your advertising is going to be very, very uh, strictly construed and, and scrutinized by your competitor. So we often say if in general your advertising should be 100% buttoned up, if you're doing a comparative ad, you should make sure that your advertising is 150% buttoned up. Um, the other thing we, we also keep an eye on is to what extent the advertising uh, may not only contain claims that allegedly may be false or misleading, but to what extent is the advertising disparaging to the competitor? And there is a difference um, on, in, in advertising law between saying that you are better than a competitor, which if truthful, um, certainly any, any, any advertiser is, is allowed to truthfully tout the benefits of their products or services over others in the category. But there is also a concept of disparagement. Um, and that is when you sort of cross another line and you're not just saying you're better than the competitor, you're actually saying that the competitor is worthless or, you know, doesn't uh, provide any value or benefit at all. Uh, and that can often be the trigger uh, for uh, a Lanham Act challenge because that creates an additional, you know, potential harm to the business reputation or the brand reputation of the company, um, which may make them, you know, more likely to go to court to seek to enjoin the advertising. Of course, the catch-22 here, if, if you're a brand that's being targeted, um, when do you decide, even if you think you're being harmed, like when, do you, when would you advise a client to actually take action? Because from a public relations standpoint, sometimes by suing, you may actually kind of fall right into the hands of what your competitor is trying to do, is, which is to, to, to raise the profile of this and get more attention uh, from a public relations standpoint. Um, like how do, you, do, you, do you ever get into those discussions with brands and decide, hey, you know what, this may not be great, but if you just wait this out, 
it'll be okay? Or do you get involved in those kind of decisions? Yeah, so that, that's that's a great question, EJ. We 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 call it being in the brand wars war room, and it's something that we do all the time. And there are a lot of considerations uh, that go into the decision as to whether to challenge a competitor. Uh, you know, first of all, there are other avenues to challenge a competitor. In addition to the Lanham Act, there is also the National Advertising Division of the Better Business Bureau, which is the agency's primary self-regulatory process and is, in fact, the forum in which the vast majority of comparative advertising challenges are brought. Uh, and there are advantages and disadvantages to NAD proceedings uh, versus Lanham Act proceedings. Uh, some of the advantages are that it's less expensive, uh, so it's less of a toll on the company. It, it In some cases, it, it can be quicker, although if a company is really looking to immediately stop a competitor's advertising, an NAD proceeding will typically take between six to eight months, whereas if you go into court um, and, you're, you, and you're successful in obtaining a temporary restraining order, that can happen in a matter of weeks. Um, you also have to consider uh, whether you're looking for monetary damages or not. The NAD um, does not award any money. Uh, they'll, they'll simply recommend um, that the advertising be discontinued if it's found to be false or misleading. Um, whereas, uh, again, under the Lanham Act, there is the possibility of, of obtaining monetary relief. So uh, there's a lot of consideration and, and strategic thought that goes into where is the best place to challenge? To, and, and that will depend not only on what you're looking to achieve, but how quickly you're looking to achieve results and exactly what is it that you're looking for. Uh, I will say that um, before we would ever advise a company uh, to bring a case under the Lanham Act in federal court, one of the things we always will take a look at is what does our client's own advertising look like? Because when you go into federal court, there is always a risk of counterclaims against your own advertising. And so it's very important bef before any company uh, goes into court to take a look at their own advertising and see whether they would be putting any of their own advertising claims at risk. The other thing you mentioned, I think, is another one, particularly in the, in the world of social media today, that companies very much have to consider, and that is the court of public opinion. And I, 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 I obviously can't mention specific companies by name, but we have had situations where uh, clients have gone into court uh, as the challenger with what are very, very good claims, but for whatever reasons, often it's the David versus Goliath issue, um, or, or, or just, you know, who's you know, got more powerful social media uh, prowess or, or, you know, followers, uh, the, the case can move into the court of public opinion. And that can sometimes um, be as, as problematic for the company as the competitor's advertising was in the first place. So that's always something that has to be considered. And you also have to consider, you know, you have to consider you know, the potential disruption to the company. Lanham Act cases in particular can be very costly as well as time consuming. Uh, and oftentimes, I, you know, I, I, again, without 
mentioning brand names, some companies may decide rather than go into court or go to the NAD, I'm going to fight it out in the marketplace. And I think we've seen a lot of instances in that where rather than challenge the competitor, the advertiser may choose to just get more competitive with its own advertising. And so, again, those are all factors that have to be considered before a decision is made. And, and so do you think this recent increase in cases, is this just an anomaly or is this, do you think this, this is kind of the new normal? Um, well, I think it's too soon to say whether it's the new normal. Uh, we, you know, the fact that you've, you've got three in rapid succession, I think many of us will be keeping a close look on this. Uh, some of, in some of the cases, there have been requests for, you know, very quick injunctive relief. And I think it will be interesting to see um, how those cases fare. Um, one of the things that we have seen just in the comparative advertising uh, world in general is companies not participating in the NAD process. Uh, and, and that's always been an issue because participation in the NAD process is voluntary. Often companies that are not familiar with the NAD will decline to participate. But recently in the last, I would say, year or year and a half, there's been an uptick in well-known companies declining to participate. And that you know, may be having an impact on this increase in litigation as well. You know where 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 some brands just feel that they you know they need to go for the for the bigger guns and 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 the bigger impact of a Lanham Act challenge. So they're skipping out on sort of the self regulation aspect and, and going right to court. Is that for the industry at large? Is that a bad thing? Do you think, or is that just kind of the way it is? I I I, I wouldn't say it's it's you know. It's a good thing or a bad thing. I think every case has to be looked at on an individual basis. Obviously, uh, I think it's very important for the industry, for the self-regulatory process to remain strong and vibrant. It's been a very effective resource within the industry for resolving the vast majority of comparative advertising disputes. And so I certainly believe it's in the best interest of the industry for that process to remain strong uh, and viable and, and, and to be seen as an effective vehicle for bringing these challenges. And I, I certainly wouldn't say that, you know, this increase for the moment in Lanham Act cases is, you know, necessarily a signal that there is any problem with the NAD process. I, I, I think a lot of this may just be a function of, um, you know, whatever industry you're in, um, marketing is becoming increasingly competitive. The margins are becoming more difficult to sustain. Um, even well-established companies are seeing competition from disruptive uh, companies and trends. And so I just think in general, we're in a much more competitive environment. And that, as much as anything, may be a reason we're seeing this uptick. Speaking of disruption and competition, I wanted to dig into another topic with you, and that is the rise of sort of these subscription-based brands. Um, obviously, Netflix a big name, but, but 
there's just so much stuff these days where you basically subscribe to it, you pay a monthly fee, you get the service. Um, but we were talking offline. There's there's some potential regulatory slash legal type issues that arise when brands get involved in this. Can can you kind of update us on on what to look out for if you know if you're a brand trying to launch a subscription based service? You know what the potential pitfalls are there? Sure. And I would say, I mean, I actually think it's fascinating um, the way the subscription-based model, you know, has expanded across so many industry sectors. Uh, You know, we read a few months ago that even car companies were uh, experimenting with subscription-based leasing programs where you basically could um, lease your car on a month-to-month basis um, many traditional CPG brands are now exploring ways uh, in, in which to package their, their products or their services into some subscription-based model. And it is definitely one of the, the most significant marketing trends um, you know, to, within the industry right now and very much expanding uh, to traditional CPG brands. That being said, um, there are a a whole host of federal and state regulations uh, that apply to this form of marketing, which any company that's, you know, considering entering into the subscription-based model should be aware of. Uh, At the top of of the food chain is the federal statute, which is called the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act. Um, the acronym is ROSCA. ROSCA is enforced primarily by the Federal Trade Commission, although the state attorneys general also have enforcement authority. And ROSCA was, you know, the, the ROSCA federal legislation was really the first piece of legislation um, to, to sort of bring this industry into regulatory focus. It applies to online uh, transactions for things like automatic renewals or free trials or, you know, what we would call, you know, these subscription-based programs. And they bas- it basically has three elements. It requires a very clear and conspicuous disclosure of the terms of the offer, specifically the fact that the subscription will automatically renew, whether it's on a monthly basis or a yearly basis. It requires that the consumer provide express uh, affirmative consent to the subscription-based component of the program, and it requires that there be a very simple method of cancellation. ROSCA was passed in 2010, and since that time, the FTC has been very, very aggressively enforcing that statute. There have been numerous cases that the FTC has brought over the course of the last nine years, and because there are statutory penalties um, associated with violating ROSCA, those cases, um, many of which have settled, have resulted in multi-million dollar settlements. Uh, but in addition to that, um, there are now numerous states that have passed their own versions of automatic renewal laws. Probably the one people uh, should be most concerned about right now Uh, is the state of California, because the state of California's law actually is even more restrictive than ROSCA in terms of how you have to make uh, the disclosures. And that statute has also 
led to numerous enforcement actions, particularly by a task force of district attorneys in the state of California uh, that have brought actions against some well-known companies. Uh, And in addition to that, it's kind of been a hotbed of consumer class action litigation because it gives consumers a, a private right of action and a right to sue under the statute. So that has been a real magnet uh, for both regulatory enforcement action and private litigation. Uh, and what we're also seeing now um, are other states uh, like Vermont, Virginia, the District of Columbia that are coming up with new statutes that are different from Roska, different from California. And so what we're going to have to keep our eye on now is uh, there, there really is a patchwork of legislation that's developing that may make it increasingly difficult um, to do national programs as these programs typically are, especially if you have to appeal to the lowest common denominator. Um, so I think that's something uh, that may have an impact on this industry in in the next year or so as more and more states are introducing this legislation. The crux of this basically, and just, just to end this um, with some practical advice, is you, you as a brand, you've got to just fully describe, like if you're asking someone to sign up for your subscription, you've got to just fully describe everything they're getting into how, many, how the payments will be taken, or, or what's the what's the biggest pitfall you see with this? Yeah, I mean, the biggest pitfall is make you know allocating space uh, to tell the consumer in a very clear way exactly what they're signing up for. Making sure they understand that once they sign up for this program, they are basically in this program until they take some action to get themselves out of it. Um, and in, you know, it, you're basically in it until you die and possibly even pass there because somebody's got to take the action on your behalf to cancel that program. And because of that, uh, you know, the, the regulators take a somewhat skeptical view. So yeah, you have to very clearly tell the consumer you're in this until you cancel uh, you got to make sure they really understand it and you get consent in a way that indicates that the consumer understands exactly what they're signing up for. And then you have to give them a really easy way to cancel and you have to tell them about it. You have to tell them how they can cancel. So we're almost out of time, but I wanted to hit quickly on one more hot topic, or at least it was a hot topic a couple of years ago. I want to get an update from you on it is kind of the old world of influencer marketing. And, you know, if, if you sign up a celebrity to talk about your brand on social media, you know, they obviously have to disclose that relationship. And, and just with the number of social media channels increasing, you know, there, there are some brands have gotten into trouble for, for not doing that in the correct way. What Just from a basic standpoint, what are you seeing right now when it comes to this influencer marketing world? So... Yeah, I mean, influencer marketing, it, you know, continues to be a, 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 a huge marketing tool for brands. Uh, and the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which is the primary agency that oversees the legality of influencer marketing, remains very, very interested 
um, in this area. And again, what, what brands need to do is they need to disclose if they have paid any money to the influencer, if they have a relationship with the influencer, the influencer is on their board, or if the influencer is getting commission, um, you know, any kind of, you know, relationship where the brand is providing something of value to the influencer, that has to be made very clear to the consumer. And, you know, uh, last year, uh, we, for the first time, uh, we, uh, we saw a brand new commission come in. It's the first time really in the history of the commission that we have five new commissioners. And there was a lot of speculation as to whether this would remain an important issue for the commission. And they kind of came right out of the gate a couple of months ago with, with a case that they brought really designed, I think, to, to send a message to the industry that they're continuing to watch influencer marketing um, and uh, they're going to continue to make sure uh, that the relationship between influencers and the brands they're working for is made clear to the consumer. And what, I think uh, the other, if I could just say one more thing, EJ, I think the other um, sort of interesting issue with influencer marketing that was highlighted um, you know, by the, by the every, you know, what happened with Fry is to what extent influencers are going to be held accountable to conduct more due diligence on events they promote or products and services that they promote. And I, I think kind of what happened with that event has actually made the, both the, the regulators, uh, you know, uh, they're talking about this internally, uh, but the influencer community as well, more sensitive to the issue of um, what level of due diligence do we need to conduct um, to make sure that whatever it is we're promoting is truly legit and whatever it is we're saying um, is, is is actually valid. You're and talking about the valid. festival, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and there, there isn't any change in the law about that. The law has always been that if an endorser or an influencer says something about a product that turns out not to be true, the influencer can be held liable. But I think what happened with the festival has highlighted that piece of the law. And, and that may be the next area where we see some regulatory activity with influencer marketing. And just quickly to finish up on this topic, uh, you know, obviously we see a lot of this just on Twitter and is it sufficient if you're a Kim Kardashian or whoever promoting a brand and we just see the kind of the hashtag partner, or is that sufficient still or, or, or is the F, are they wanting more than that now? Actually, the FTC has been very clear that they're wanting more. About a year ago, they, they sent out letters to 90 influencers and their agents and the brands um, basically saying that um, something like a hashtag partner, hashtag ambassador isn't really going to be sufficient. Um, you're going to have to indicate um, the name of the brand as well. So it would be okay if you're, you know, Kim Kardashian is um, promoting XYZ product to say hashtag XYZ partner or hashtag XYZ ambassador. 
Um, it's not enough to just, you know, have that descriptor without the name of the brand. And the other thing that the FTC has made very clear is that that disclosure needs to be in a really prominent place. So for example, on Instagram, it's got to be within the first three lines. It's got to be before um, the consumer needs to click. It's got to be visible as soon as, you know, they're, they're looking at the post without having to scroll or click or do anything else. We're about out of time, and I, I'm sure there's like a million other things we could discuss here, but maybe we'll have you back on in a few months to kind of update us on this. And, and we'll all be kind of watching those false advertising lawsuits to, to see where that is headed and, and all this stuff. So thanks again for your time, Linda. Really appreciate it. Thank you, and, and thanks for having me. Great. Thank you. I want to thank Linda Goldstein for joining us on today's edition of the Marketer's Brief Podcast. She is a partner at the Baker Hostetler Law Firm. My name is EJ Schultz, Assistant Managing Editor at AdAge. I want to thank Max Sternlicht, who is the producer of today's episode, and remind everyone to please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite provider, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and others. I will see you next time. Thank you.